Welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast with me, Melissa K. Norris, where we inspire your faith and your pioneer roots with old-fashioned skill sets and wisdom for a modern world. This is episode number 115, where we are going to be sharing tips and methods that the pioneers use to be more self-sufficient and to save money going into the leaner months which for them was the winter months when they didn't have a harvest that they could be going out and getting food from on a regular basis like we do during the summer months when typically you have more variety of items able to grow when it's warmer. And on our modern counterpart, we still have that for a lot of us who raise our own food and are dependent upon our garden and that type of thing. You don't have that fresh produce coming in during the winter months. At least most of us don't, depending upon your growing season. And it's also leaner in the modern world in the aspect that typically our costs are up more during the winter months because you've got heat increase. So you've got your utility increase. Days are shorter, so you're using more lights, needing to use more heat. And we have the Christmas season. And I know, I know, I know you are like Melissa. It is the end of September. What are you doing talking about Christmas? Well, we're going to be discussing that a little bit in this episode as well because that is another thing that the pioneers did with a lot of their fall tips that I'm going to be sharing with you today. So, of course, like the pioneers of old, and at the time of this recording, it's the tail end of September, we are working hard to bring in the harvest. So not only are we wanting to harvest the food so that we can eat whatever is ripe and ready now, so we've got that fresh, but we've also got our mind's eye set to preserving it for the rest of the winter months. Now, of course, in the pioneer days, it wasn't just simply a matter of stocking the larder so they didn't have to go to the store and buy things or they could save and use their money for other things. It was a matter of necessity and survival. If they didn't put up that food to have during the winter months when weather did not allow them to necessarily go out or things wouldn't grow, they were going to go get, they were going to be hungry. They were going to be going hungry. Them, their kids, their livestock. It wasn't just like us where we would just have to, oh, you know, I'm going to have to go to the store and buy a few more things than I really want to. It was totally a matter of survival. I think that this time of year, at least for us with our growing season and our our homestead in the Pacific Northwest, is probably the busiest. I've got the most things coming on that need to be preserved, even more so than in the spring when we're doing the planting or kind of the beginning or midsummer. I have a lot more food here that come on and require my attention all at once than any other time of the year. But it's also really exciting and rewarding because you really see all the fruits of the work that's went into growing everything as they go on the pantry shelves and you see all of the items being restocked for the year where you were starting to run low on them. For me personally, tomato sauce is one of the main things that I focus on with our tomato harvest is putting up enough tomato sauce to take us through the whole year. And that's because I use tomato sauce as the base for making, you can make homemade ketchup out of it. I use it, I make homemade barbecue sauce out of it. Of course, pizza sauce, pasta sauce, regular tomato sauce. I use it as a thickener or a flavoring agent in a lot of different soups and chilies and stews and casseroles. I don't buy condensed canned of anything. I don't buy soup at the store and I will use our regular tomato sauce and I will use that in place of different casseroles and recipes where you would normally use condensed tomato soup. I'll just use a can of my tomato sauce. And that leads me into one of the 
best tips that leads me into our main tip number one from the pioneers to implement, and that is to do the quickest and most versatile form of preservation or use of the food. So for me, tomato sauce is the most versatile form instead of taking it and creating all of those different things. Then I just do it all in tomato sauce. And then when I'm going to prepare a recipe, then I'll turn it into if I need it to be pasta sauce or pizza sauce or tomato paste or whatever, I'll do it at that time. Another example of this is when it comes to our herbs and our spices. So for example, I actually have dill weed going, so the leaves, not the seed, though I do harvest and dry that as well, going from the garden. And when I've got that dehydrated dill, then I can take that and I can turn it into a whole bunch of different things. So of course I use it to make my own pickling spices, use it to flavor butter, use it to flavor in sauces. I make my own homemade ranch mix. Lots and lots and lots of different things from just having that dehydrated dill. So I take all of my spices and I dehydrate them down and then I store them and then I compile the different things that I'm going to be using them in for later. And not necessarily with dill, but a lot of your other herbs, dried herbs that we've got, then I will take them and create, you could create tinctures from them. You've got, of course, your culinary use, herbal oils all kinds of different things that we can take once we've got it preserved in that easy, versatile form. Another thing that we love to do, and if you want to hear more in depth, I'll just give you a quick recap right now. But if you haven't listened to it, you're going to want to go back and listen to the full podcast episode. And that was is number 70, podcast episode number 70, and it's 10 tips for storing vegetables without a root cellar for long-term storage. We are just at the end of our hot spell. In fact, tomorrow we're supposed to drop 20 degrees during our daytime temperature. So I'll be going out and bringing in our pump, most of the pumpkins. I've got a few I'll leave on the vine as long as we don't have that cold, cold frost that kills everything. But we've got winter squash. I've got some summer squash. And really when it comes to your winter squash, so think butternut, acorn, hubbard, spaghetti squash, those types of uh, those winter squashes. When I bring those in, for me, their most versatile form is just when they're whole. Because then I can decide if I want to cook them to puree them up or to roast them, to add them to soups, just whatever it is. If we just want to eat them for that evening all by themselves, don't necessarily turn them into anything. And so not only is it very versatile, but the easiest way to harvest them is just to harvest them whole and bring them in and use some root cellaring techniques. Now, we don't actually have a root cellar. I don't have a garage. We've just got our regular house, which stays at its regular temperature. But I'll give you a couple of quick tips, and then you can go and listen to that full episode. And that is to leave the stem on. So when you leave the stem on, and this is true for any fruit, anything that you harvest that has a stem on it. So think cherries, apples, of course, pumpkins, cucumbers, zucchinis, anything that has a stem on it. Leave that stem on. Because once the stem is removed, then oxygen and things can get down and the food begins to break down much, much faster, even if you're putting it in the fridge. So say you purchase cherries and you're going to put them in the fridge to use within a few days. If you're picking them or you have the option where you're looking to buy them, if you're not the one that's harvesting it, look for the majority that have the stems still on them. They'll last a whole lot longer. Same principle applies to root cellaring or storing vegetables using root cellaring techniques is if you can leave the stem on. 
And then the other thing is to wipe down the outside of them. So if there's any bacteria out there from, you know, just being outside within the soil and the air and that type of thing is to wipe them down. I wipe them down with vinegar. So just take a towel of vinegar and wipe it down and then dry it really good because wet, obviously any type of moisture is going to create rot a lot sooner, but wipe it down the outside. So you get anything off of it that could be spores that would lead to quicker deterioration on it. And those two tips alone, you can go and get the rest and to listen to the previous episodes. And if you want to go and get show notes, I've got complete blog posts, show notes, and resources for every episode. Just go to melissaknorris.com, click on the podcast button, and you'll see all of the episodes listed by number. This is 115, and that one was number 70. So we talked on this a little bit, and that is going back to stocking up your herbs and your spice cabinet. Now, the homes of old, so the pioneers, they had not only kitchen herb gardens because that's what they would use in their cooking. So they had a culinary herb garden, and typically it was outside the kitchen door or near to the house. So when you were cooking something, you could quickly just walk outside harvest it, bring it in, and use it for whatever it was that you were making. And a lot of people still have patio herb gardens. You'll have, you know, your big containers, and that's kind of the method that we use. I do have some of my herbs in the ground, but I try to put them in my landscaping that's close to the house. And then I've got some really big, large half-barrel whiskey planters that I have a lot of my herbs in, too, that are, it's tucked up next to the house so that I can access it. And then it's also a little bit warmer there, so it helps some of them. I'm in zone seven, and so rosemary doesn't typically like to winter over here very well, but I found that if I've got it in a big container and it's in the southern exposure tucked up next to the house, I've had the same rosemary plant winter over now going on like four or five years. So that's another reason to do some containers with some of your herbs is you, then you can move them around to keep them growing longer. You can create kind of little microclimates within your area, within your yard. But the homes of old, and a lot of us even still today, still have, we grow some herbs that we use in our cooking, but they also did and grew a lot of their own herbs or would go harvesting them if they were things that grew wild there. They would use those to stock up their medicine cabinet because we, they didn't have a lot of the over-the-counter medications that we do today, and they certainly didn't have the majority that we have or the ease that we have of going to get them. Now, just disclosure, disclaimer in there, I'm not a professional medical, I'm not a sur- herbalist or anything like that, but I do believe in learning and researching and using some traditional natural remedies and herbs in your natural medicine cabinet alongside with our modern medicine. So I like to marry the two together. I think it's the best of both worlds. So just just to get that out there and to be clear, but that's what the, the pioneers definitely did is they looked at what they had and they harvested it and brought it in, not just for culinary use and for stocking their pantry, but also for medicinal use. So like I mentioned earlier, when I was talking about the dried dill, a lot of your other things we will dry and use as well. So I go out and harvest my sage leaves. I bring those in and dehydrate my sage, my peppermint. So I've got lots of different mint growing on the homestead. Lavender. We have echinacea this year. I was very excited. It was my first year I've grown echinacea. So I didn't harvest it because they were itty bitty, itty bitty little baby plants. I'm going to let them get established before I harvest from them. That's another great point too on harvesting your own herbs is you always know that it was done responsibly and without wiping anything out because we're not going to wipe out our own sources. 
but you're going to, I always like to do the dried herbs. Now there's a few things that I will use fresh herbs for mainly for cooking and sometimes I'll freeze them, but the majority of my herbs get dried and then I'll take those dried herbs and turn them into different tinctures. Now, if I'm doing an alcohol-based tincture, then I you can use fresh herb and fresh plant matter. So I'll do that if I'm doing like mint extract or something like that. But when it comes to doing teas and herbal infused oils, that's when I use my dehydrated. And also when I'm making tea, you can use fresh and sometimes I'll do that. But usually I dehydrate it up because I want to make the tea later in the year. And as we know, fresh doesn't stay good just when it's been picked for very long, even in the fridge, it's going to break down. So I use the dried the most because that is the most versatile form for them what we later use. But if learning how to stock up your own natural medicine cabinet along with your spice cabinet is something that you are interested in, then you are definitely want to go I've got a awesome free resource for you guys. So go to melissaknorris.com slash infused oil. The link will also be in the show notes for this episode. But I'm going to walk you through two ways to make herbal infused oil. So there is a few safety things to keep in mind when you're doing infused oils. But I'm, and I'm going to show you the really old fashioned, like the true pioneer way to do herbal infused oils. And then a modern way that we can fast track it if you need to have it in a hurry. And then the really cool thing, and that's what today's episode is actually sponsored by. So my new book, which is Handmade, the modern guide to made from scratch living. I'm super excited. Officially launches and will begin shipping from the publishing company and into the physical bookstores October 1st. And in it, we talk about using herbs medicinally, growing them, and what one of the things that, and we also, I teach you how to make a lot of handmade things that is then based off of that herbal infused oil. So for example, herbal infused lip balm and whipped chocolate peppermint body butter, which smells as phenomenal as it sounds. It makes you want to eat it, but we, we won't because it really doesn't taste as good as it smells, but it is a fabulous moisturizer and it uses herbal infused oils. So there's also how to make cold process soap along with tons of new made from scratch recipes. But I've got something very special that's going on now. So if you want to get your hands on it early, then you're definitely going to want to check out the handmade masterclass. And so that's like I said, you can learn how to do these two infused methods for making herbal infused oils for free. And I also have an herbal chart. So in that chart, it's taken directly from chapter four, which is Thrive of the new book Handmade. And it's a chart and it's got the herbs listed by their medicinal properties. And it's my favorite herbs that I've chosen that I use when you're making. And it's got my list of favorite herbs that are traditionally used more when you're making salves and ointments and that type of a thing or infusing oil with. So you can get that resource totally for free and then check out the Handmade Masterclass as well because the Handmade Masterclass, not only do you get five Masterclass videos, so we show you how to do melt and pour soap with natural colorants, cold process soap, which involves using lye water, so you're making soap totally from scratch, and then how to use spices in your cupboard to color it. So if you want to create swirls or layered, if you want some prettiness going on in your soap, especially for holiday gift giving, then you're going to want to catch that one. Herbal infused, like I said, body butter and lip balm. And then because I am a bit of a girly girl, if you've listened to the podcast at all, I'm a true homestead mama, but let me tell you, I like to have a little bit of sparkle and bling going on. And I still like to wear makeup, but I have to know 
that it's not filled with bad things. And so in order to create a lip balm and lipstick that had some color in it, that I actually liked the colors and I was cool with the ingredients that were in it, I started making my own. So you get a customized color guide as well that shares all of my recipes and then how to create your own custom colors. So you might have different color preference than I do, right? So that's the beauty of handmade things. You get to control the ingredients and you get to create it and customize it for exactly how you want it. So there's lots of, and you get, I forgot, you get the physical copy of the book and an early digital copy. So the physical copy in it, we're going only through October 3rd as a special early bird where you get the handmade masterclass and the book and it's at 80% off. There's some really awesome coupons in there too. So I just highly encourage you to check it out because there is way more involved in there than I can put in here all on the podcast but you'll get early access to the digital copy while you're waiting for the physical copy to be shipped to you. So pretty cool stuff. You want to go and check that out. Which brings me to our next point that the pioneers did, which is point number three. And that is they typically, and you still see this, the majority of people today, especially if they're raising it themselves and even hunting season, of course, when it's open in your area, is the harvest of meat. So traditionally, a lot of the pioneers waited until October or November, sometimes September, depending upon when their first hard freezes come and the weather turns. But that's traditionally when they began harvesting their meat for the year. And there's multiple reasons for that. And it's still part of the reason that we typically, when we're going to go about butchering the pigs and our beef for the year, we do it in the fall months. In fact, I'm going to give you a tip. If you are new to raising your own meat or needing to use the butcher, you want to call and schedule it months ahead of time because you hit the end of September and they are booked solid usually into like the first of December. But the reason for that is, of course, the first and pretty most obvious reason is you have cold temperatures. So when you have cold temperatures, the meat is going to stay longer. And with beef, when you butcher beef, if you've got a controlled environment, which is going to be like a large refrigerator, you want to let the meat age. You want to let it hang for at least 14 days, 21 if you can do it, because the beauty of that is the meat is aging. It goes through some enzyme and it starts to break the meat down and it develops much more flavor and it has a lot better texture. So more, it's going to be a lot more tender. So that's one of the reasons we don't actually butcher our beef ourselves is because we don't have a hanging refrigerated unit where we can hang it and let it age. And the temperatures here, we don't have a garage or a big area like that so that we, like I said, you really do want to be able to keep it cool. And here in the Pacific Northwest, we don't really get cold enough on a consistent basis this time of year to actually butcher and have it stay cold enough to do everything. So that's the reason that we actually use a local butcher to do our beef. But the pioneers of old, like I said, they needed those cooler temperatures to then help the meat keep because they didn't have refrigeration. They would do a lot of salt curing depending upon where they lived. If it got really hard and frozen, then the meat would just be fine and they could put it out in a in a cold house, that type of a thing. The other reason though, is when you are harvesting animals and the pioneers knew this too, back in the day, they weren't going to the store and purchasing their feed. They were going to have to put it all in. And I love reading Farmer Boy. It's one of my favorite from the Little House series. And they raised a whole bunch of corn. And of course they would grow their own, their grass, right? And they would harvest that for their hay, but they raised a lot of corn and sometimes pumpkin and different foods like that. 
because they had to make sure that they had enough food to get their animals through the winter. And with our cattle, we don't purchase our cattle feed from the store from anywhere else. They are on pasture for the majority of the year, but then usually come October and we were actually really dry and hot this year. So our grass quit growing and we had to start feeding a month early, which definitely can raise feed costs, but it's a necessity. And so we purchase locally harvested grass hay. We also do the big round marshmallow looking bales. Those we do and feed later on in the year. Right now we've got some big grass hay. But those are what we feed typically through October till about the end of April. But we don't have to buy it from the store per se. But we, my brother actually does some hay and then we have some other people that just live around here locally that we're able to get it from. But the reason that you would harvest now is because you want to harvest when the animal is at its largest or you're going to get the most harvest. And typically that is coming off the end of summer and going into the beginning of fall when they have had plenty to eat all year and they've got the most meat or the most pounds on the hoof. And so you want to butcher before they start to lose it. You always want to butcher. It's called on the gain. So you want to butcher when it's on the gain. But also you want to butcher before you have to start feeding that animal anymore from your stores when you go into the winter months. And another thing that I love about this time of year that we don't necessarily have to do out of necessity, but that the pioneers did is when they butchered, they used all the parts of the animals. So typically those homes of old, they were making their own soaps. They were making their own candles. They needed their light source for the year and they needed that fat too for cooking purposes. And just pretty much they needed that to make most of the things that they used in their home. They didn't weren't going to the store and purchasing them things. And so they would, when they butchered the cattle, they would render down the fat and that's called tallow. So from a beef, you've got the fat and that's tallow. And that's typically what you would use to make soap out of. So they would use the tallow and sometimes candles as well, because you're going to get a lot more fat off of a cow than you are a pig. And of course, with a pig, the fat that you render down is lard. So typically they would use the beef tallow to make their soaps and also to do for candles. And then the lard, you can also make soap out of lard. You can also do candles with lard, but lard is usually preferred for your cooking, especially your pastries and your baking and that type of thing. And especially the leaf lard. So that's the lard around the kidneys and those organs. It doesn't have as much of a porky taste. But we render down all of the lard that we get when we butcher our pigs. I keep all of the lard. So the first rendering is what I save. And that's what I do use for our baking. Because it's the, the pure white. And it doesn't have really much of a pork flavor at all. And then the second rendering I'll use for things like in tortillas or with meats. Like where you, you want a little bit of the bacon flavor right? So I'll use that for that. Then you've got the third rendering and that you can still use in making for candles and for soap making and all those different kinds of projects. So one of the really fun things that we I share in the handmade is one of the things we do is we make our own beeswax candles and I make them in a mason jar. I have not went so far, not to say that it's not on my list, but you guys know I love mason jars, right? I Every time I say this, I'm like, I need to put this on a shirt for real. Everything just looks and tastes better in a mason jar. Can I get a holler? 
So making beeswax lard candles. Now, I know not everybody has access to lard. Not everybody is rendering down their own lard. I get that. So in the masterclass, I share with you, and it's also in the book, I share with you how to make your own beeswax candles in a jar. And one of the cool things is beeswax is a natural byproduct, obviously, of honeybees. And so if you've got people, you may be a homesteader that already has your own hives. So you were able to harvest that. That's something that the pioneers did if they had, actually my grandfather, he passed away. Way, bef- way before I was born, so I never got to meet him. But he had bees. He was a beekeeper. So I'm kind of fascinated by it. I am not a beekeeper as of yet. We have mason bees to help with pollination, but I don't have honeybees. But I know local beekeepers. So if you can't do it yourself, knowing someone local is the next best thing. But you can get beeswax, which is what I've done. You can also order beeswax online. But it's something that could be produced. You could produce it still yourself today, and it's something they definitely could produce back then. And I like to use the beeswax, and then I mix it with either lard, which you do not smell the lard when it's mixed with the beeswax and it's burning, I promise, or coconut oil, because I know not everybody has access to the lard. But you take those two items and you make a candle. And so I share how to do that. And that's something that back then they needed to make sure they were going into the winter months. They'd probably already used up all of their candles. And so this time of year was really important that they were able to butcher to get that fat, to get it rendered down, and then to turn it into all of these other products. Remember, the most versatile form of preservation is when it's in its fat and it's been rendered. I should say when that fat has been rendered, not just left on on the meat, but it's been rendered down and then turn it into all of these other items. So they're light sources. Like I said, we've got the candles going and then there's soap for the year. And in the fall, of course, it was really important to make your light source. Days are getting shorter and you're going to need a lot more. But as I said, then they looked at everything that they had been able to harvest or were doing. And this is the time of year that they would start to think about making Christmas gifts for people. And typically, I love reading back in the pioneer days and I will link in the show notes. I've got a couple of episodes more on a pioneer Christmas, which I won't go quite as far in depth in on today's episode, but they would start to think about because you would usually only give one gift to a person. Today, we all of us received way more than one gift, but usually, especially when you look at Laura Ingalls and remembering she got the orange and a penny and a tin cup, and that was her Christmas gifts, which is very vastly different from the majority of Christmas gifts and the amount that people get in this modern day and age. But in order to keep it a surprise and to make it handmade, they would start looking and, and making things and planning out to make sure that it was done in time and that they had the supplies and what they could create. And this is what I love is what they could create from what they had on hand instead of necessarily going out and buying it. Now, they may have had to buy a few things in order to make it, but they could use their base ingredients. And so that is one of my favorite parts about handmade So if you are not already, I would love to show you how to take all of those things like we've been talking about and to turn them into the beeswax candle in a mason jar, lip balms, which you can have without the color for the guys on your list. I know my husband always needs lip balm when those winter months come and you've got those cold temperatures and they're working outside. But then for the girly girls, we have got the tinted options and learning how to make your own homemade soap is so much fun. And I go over both the melt and pour for those if you're wanting to have a project where you're not really comfortable using the active lye yet. 
That one's perfect too if you've got kids that want to help and you can still create and customize them. Or if you're like, no, I'm jumping into this like full-fledged homesteading pioneer style. I want to know how to do the lye water and how to make my soap totally from scratch. So we share that definitely with safety tips. We do have to use caution when it comes to lye. But show you how to make those cold process soaps so that you can do it totally from scratch and make your own creations. And then, of course, we've got whipped body butter. We've got a whole bunch of really fun things. So I would love for you to check it out because I think that every home should be making as much as possible. And I see that within reason because I don't ever want anybody to feel like, oh my goodness, I'm not making all of this like pressure, right? We put way too much pressure on ourselves and so does society. So if you're not making all of these things now, totally do not feel bad. But if you want to learn how to make them, I would love to come and bring you into my kitchen and into my homestead and show you the exact steps and ways that we've been making them and what has worked really best for us. So don't forget, you can, the base of a lot of these projects starts with herbal infused oil. So you can go and grab that at melissakenorris.com slash infused oil. So you can grab that tutorial. It's a video tutorial with the download chart on the herbs for medicinal use. Super easy. And then you can also check out Handmade, both the book and the masterclass. So I want to thank you so much for listening. It has been a while for my regular listeners since I've had a new podcast episode out. And there's been lots of stuff that I will talk with you about in an upcoming episode. A lot of changes. I did quit my day job and I'm now at home full time doing the homesteading and the blogging. But there has been a lot of changes and I want to share with you what those transitions have looked like and some of the things that we had did beforehand before we even knew that this transition would be happening that have set us up to make it a lot easier. For our verse of the week, we are going with Psalm chapter 90 verse 17. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And that is from the Amplified Translation of the Bible. But we've been talking a lot about making things from hand. Handmade is the name of the book and the new course. And talking about all of the things that the pioneers did this time of year to then make sure that they got through the winter months and were set for the following year. And all of that includes the work of our hands. And I don't know about you, but for me, I want the Lord to be involved in everything of my life, especially the things that I'm doing and creating with my hands as well. And so I thought this was just especially fitting for this time of year and as we go about doing our work. So again, thank you so much for joining me and I will see you guys on the next episode.